I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. What is up, Geeky Pressers? This is Brad King. I'm your host of the Downtown Riders Jam podcast. This is the first episode of season three. We've been away for a little while. Lots of changes since the last time we talked. The first is that I am now in Pittsburgh and not in Indianapolis anymore. I took a job out at Carnegie Mellon as an editor and publisher. Part of what happened when I did that was that we shut down the Geeky Press back in Indianapolis. So we had been publishing books and literary magazines, and we had a nice community, and um, you know the partners were really actively involved. But as things happen in life, everybody started to get busy, um, and it became increasingly difficult for us to continue running our events, sort of doing all the things that we needed to do. So we decided that we were going to shut things down. Um, which was sad, but also gives us the opportunity to do some new things. Uh, The podcast will continue because the podcast is mine, and it's a thing that I enjoy doing. We have a really good season lined up for you. I already have six or seven folks in order. We'll be doing some interviews over the next few months, so there will be new episodes rolling out um, every couple weeks, particularly through the holiday. And I'm really excited today to have Vicki Toback on. She has a new book called Contact High, A Visual History of Hip Hop. She's fascinating. So I met Vicki, I think around 2001, when I was at Wired and hosting a show, a 
what you would now call a podcast, but back then it was just downloadable audio with a guy named Ken Rakowski and Brian Zisk. And the show was called Speculations, and we got together every Friday, and we spent an hour talking about technology and entertainment and interviewing people from around the world. And after about a year of that, Ken decided that we needed some new folks, which was good. Um, and so he, he brought Vicky in. Vicky was at CBS Market Watch. So I didn't know Vicky. Our entire existence was around that Friday podcast. We really didn't know each other outside of that. And through the magic of social media and things of that nature over the last 17 years, we sort of kept in contact here and there sporadically when it would make sense. Um, and then this book came out, which is this amazing collection of old contact sheets from photographers, iconic images that came out of that contact sheet of hip-hop artists, and then stories from the photographers about what was happening when that happened. Then it's in chronological order. So you can really experience this book in three, four ways, right? Like either through these iconic images, through these contact sheets, through these stories, or the way Vicky put this thing together is that you can experience all of those things, right? So like the stories are talking about the contact sheet and the events into which that happened. And then you sort of see the outcome of that. And it's like 280 pages and it's fucking gorgeous and it's amazing and it's brilliant. And so I saw this and I was like, well, okay, I knew that I wanted to get the podcast up and going again now that I was out here. And that seemed like a really good way because I don't really know anything about Vicky other than like I said our interactions with that but I knew that like she was a first generation immigrant from Kazakhstan um, we're about the same age so I knew you know kind of some of the things that she had seen and gone through I knew she had worked in the music industry when she was young but I didn't know what that meant and so through the course of this interview all these really Really fascinating stories came out because she was a music publicist and marketer and storyteller at the sort of dawn of this stuff. And so, as she says, and you'll hear her talk about, she knew who a lot of these photographers were. So as she went back and, like, got them to let her see these contact sheets, you know, part of the reason that she's able to pull this off is that she was there which that shit is always fascinating to me. And then sort of juxtaposing that with being a first-generation, you know, Soviet immigrant at a time when the Cold War was at its height and she doesn't speak English, like how does that person end up in the middle of the world of hip-hop? So this seemed like a really good first interview and I was really excited to do this so this season actually a lot of the people that you're going to hear are going to be friends of mine um, people who are some of them who are well-known authors who I've known for a while but who I probably have known or mostly known through professional endeavors at Wired or just sort of like existing in the world of writing and I've never really sat down to like delve into like who they are and how they ended up where they ended up and why they ended up there so I'm very excited about season three, and I'm really excited about this interview, and I think you guys are really going to like it. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time today diverging into the rest of my life. We have the whole season to talk about that, 
What I want to do right now is get you to Vicki Toback, who is the author of Contact High, a visual history of hip hop. Okay, so I got your book, and it's fucking amazing. And the first, like, I've been just sort of, I rarely, when I, when I, when I, when there are books that I have that are sort of photo heavy, I have a hard time, because I'm a reader, like, looking at all the pictures, and the fucking contact sheets are amazing in this thing. And the first thought that I had was, how long did it take you to put that together? This must have taken forever. It, you know, it took, it, it took a while. Um, because yeah, I mean, accessing contact sheets is, you know, like accessing an archive. They were never really meant for public consumption. Um, so, you know, I worked, I worked on the book for about three years, but I always say, you know, had I not been working in music, you know, starting at 19 and had I not like fallen in love and already known these images, um, like I, I probably couldn't have done it. You know, it probably would have yeah. taken me another 20 years to, to do it. But, um, but yeah, but the actual, like looking through people's archives, um, you know, doing all the interviews and everything took about, yeah, it took about three years, but I already, I, I came in already kind of knowing a lot of, uh, what I was looking for. So the other thing about this is that the, I think the last time, the last time I probably saw you was, 1990, I don't know, or maybe 2001, 2001, maybe. I mean, it's been a long time. Like, we did this little online radio show. I don't even know how many times you did it. Ken and I and Brian had done it for like 18 months. I, I, I mean, so yeah, that sounds about right. 2001, <laughs> yeah. which feels like two years ago, but, um, but yeah. And, and, and you guys were really ahead of your time with the whole podcast thing. Um, <laughs> I remember doing that show with you guys and I think you guys were also just very happy to have a woman in the mix, yeah. right. Of like, <laughs> yes, three dudes talking about technology is not even in 2001 was a little obtuse, right. <laughs> but like, I didn't know, I think you knew Ken or you met Ken or, and you just showed up one day. Like, we had no idea you were even going to be there. I can't, yeah, I can't remember who, I think it was Ken that asked me because I was working at um, CBS Market Watch at the time. I was, right, um, right. yeah, I had a column there called um, uh, That's Entertainment about, yeah. you know, all these new digital media tech technologies that were coming and disrupting the music business and film business. Um you know, interviewing little startups like Netflix at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And I think you guys were recording an episode based on that. So Ken like came, asked me to come in and, and, and be a guest and got along swimmingly. Yeah. Here and, we are. <laughs> you know, um, cause I was at Wired. I had been writing about that stuff at Wired since 99 and I was getting ready to quit and leave. I, we had, I, I was just about to get a, a book deal with John Borland and so I think part of the reason Ken was looking for other people is Brian's disc and I were both like, ah, we've been doing this for a long time and we don't really give a shit about it anymore. <laughs> um, just, be, you know, like the bust had sort of happened at that point, right? Like we were on the sort of like, oh, God, everything's imploding. Um, 
at least in terms of the startup stuff. So like I knew you as like one of us, like one of those people writing about technology and entertainment and, you know, sort of that whole confluence of shit that happened for five years. But that wasn't like, I have just now, like, so when this book showed up, I was, I had no idea. I, I had zero idea who you were in terms of like, oh shit, like you were actually a music person. Well, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, by the, by the time that we met, I was sort of on to um, not a second career, but, you know, well, yeah, maybe a second career. Like journalism was um, something that I came into after I worked in the music business for, for a good bit. And I, you know, I started young. So, you know, I had moved from Detroit to New York, um, moving there with this great love of music, hip hop specifically, but, you know, having grown up in Detroit, like music is just so part of your DNA, you know, and I was so lucky to grow up with, you know, soul and Motown and funk, you know, Parliament Funkadelic, like that was just part of it. And so, um, I went to New York sort of knowing that I wanted to be part of that. And, um, randomly, you know, like I was at, in school, um, I was working, you know, all these odd jobs and, um, I worked at this really, um, well-known nightclub at the time called Nell's. Um, and a lot of like hip hop people would come there, like all the like early Def Jam folks, like a lot. It was like this kind of Prince would come there. Chaka Khan would come now Rogers. It was like, really a great, great music scene. And then like a lot of hip hop people started to come. So somebody I worked with was like, you, um, you know, uh, someone that I know is starting this small independent label called Payday Records, um, Empire Management, and they're looking for someone to work there. So, um, so I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Like they, at the time they managed Gangstar. I obviously, you know, loved Gangstar and, um, everything that like all the groups that they were working with. So I got a job there and, you know, within like a few weeks, I became their, their director of, um, <laughs> right. Well, there were only five of us working there. Right. So it but wasn't, I mean, that's how that shit happens, right? Like that's how, how it happens. Right. I mean, it's very kind of startup culture too, sure. right? Like, yeah. Okay. If there's five of you, likelihood is that all five of you are going to have really big titles. Right. <laughs> like who can, who can write right. and who can talk to people on the phone? Like you're the director right. of marketing and publicity. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> who can get these guys to interviews on time? Right. Okay. You're the direct, you're the vice president of, right. Right. Whatever <laughs> so, you want to call yourself, like call yourself yeah. that. And you are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so, so I got really um, ingrained sort of in that, in that world, um, you know, traveled, like toured with Gangstar, met a lot of the photographers that are in this book back then when they were taking photographs, like publicity photos or magazine photos, um, or album cover photos. Um, so I already, I had met, you know, a lot of them back then. And so this was also a time when like a lot of, uh, hip hop magazines were starting up. So what year um, is this? What, what year this are we is, in? This is okay. So this is 1991. Okay. Um, and, and you're what? 20? 19? 19. Yeah. Um, and so 1991, like that, you know, I'm, I'm doing all this and a lot of, uh, magazines are starting up at this time. Um, you know, you have like 
rap pages, um, ego trip, beat down, um, the source, you know, all, all of these kind of like magazines really dedicated to hip hop were starting. And I started writing for them. Um, just having met, you know, a lot of like the writers and editors on the scene, like it was such a small world, you know, you just, it seemed like, you know, you could kind of meet anyone just by nature of being around. And so, um, so I started, I started writing, um, and you know, some of my early writing was like, I mean, I wasn't trying, you know, I didn't go to journalism school. I didn't, um, you know, I studied politics at, at school, but, um, are you in you know, college at this time or are you? Yes. Okay. So I am taking classes at like odd hours to fit in my life. And like, what school? What university? At NYU. So you're at NYU during the day with these people and then like, then you're going in like in the middle of the emerging hip hop culture in the evening. So not even because I was, remember I was working full time and then I was doing all the night stuff that was required too. But so I would take classes at like, I would take like the nine o'clock class. Right. And then by, I'd be done by like 1030 and then I'd be, you know, we had kind of later hours at sure. the office. Sure. They were like, they were like 11 to seven. Right. And so the music industry were, doesn't start at seven in the morning. <laughs> so like I could do my morning classes in the morning and then I could be at my desk, you know, at like 1045 or 11 work all day, maybe take like a 7 PM class. Um, so I just kind of like figured it out. <laughs> did you so, graduate? I did. I did. That's amazing. Um, yeah. With I what? Graduated. With what degree? With a, with a BA in, in politics. <laughs> okay. So nothing <laughs> at all that you're doing during the day. No, Okay. <laughs> not at all. But, you know, in my mind, it was all so connected because at the time too, like I was really interested in like you know, alternative politics, the history of like, um, you know, civil rights and things like, sure. you know, and, and my family had actually immigrated from Kazakhstan and to Detroit in the late seventies. So, um, you know, I, this kind of lived experience of like an immigrant kid that was like placed smack dab into like section eight housing and, you know, in that whole world. And, you know, I was really interested in sort of like, <laughs> politics i mean to sure. me it was i was like trying to make sense of it you know and so to i mean me, looking back the these music, two things do go together yes right? absolutely absolutely i at mean 19 I was, maybe not <laughs> at 19 you know well yeah you're kind of operating on instinct and right. interest at that time and so later i figured out why i was interested in all of the above sure um and you know and so music at that time hip a lot of hip-hop was very, you know, political or, you know, conscious as they call it, you know, but like (laughs) there were certain groups that, um, you know, public enemy brand newbie. And, um, I mean, you name it, like I, I loved all those groups and I was really drawn to them and gangstar, like, holy shit, like gangstar guru, like he, I wish he was around, you know, to see this book. He passed away, um, many years ago, but, you know, he, he was a really, really great, you know, thinker. And if you are a fan of Gangstar, you listen to them, like you can, you can hear it in the lyrics. Um, and you can see it in their visual choices, actually. Like there's, um, I decided to include in the book, um, a couple Gangstar shoots, but one of them, you know, um, one of them was 
a shoot where it's Guru and Premiere, but there's like a portrait of Malcolm X in the back. Yeah, yeah. I just got I'm, – I'm just at that part of the book. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so it's like that – that was that interested me at the time, but and then also now, like looking back at how certain choices or certain um, frames of reference, like informed, like how that came out in visual form too. So, um, yeah. So I was like, you know, just trying to figure it out, and I started writing, and so I was writing um, a ton about music. You know, I interviewed. I was like one of Tupac's first interviews. Um, his mom sat in on that interview, <laughs> like, you know, all like there was just great access at that time too. Um, cause music wasn't, um, hip hop wasn't as, you know, guarded or, you know, wasn't, well, it wasn't. Is, yeah. That's the theme and all of the things that you're, you know, like mm. all of the photographers writing about stuff, like in the book, everybody just keeps saying like, well, if we were doing this today, we would be thinking way more about like, I can't remember who it was, but one of the, it may have been Gangstar, where one of the guys had a gun, you know, and he's just sort of holding it in the picture. And the, the, whoever was writing the thing was like, we would not have done that, would it be today? Because, but we just were just kids doing what we did and didn't really think about it. And like right. getting to the Queen Latifah part and like seeing her with the sort of iconic picture and then seeing the contact sheet of like her with her mom and she looks like she's 10 because she's sitting next to her mom right like she sort of right. instantly <laughs> transforms into what every kid does when their mom is next to them no matter how old they are right like mm. um like that stuff was so resonant yeah. to me and it was it was you know having i like to tell this story like the first phone call i ever got on a cell phone was chuck d when i was at wired like i just got my cell phone and uh you know, he was starting rap station, so we were doing a lot of stuff with him. And he, he had never talked, you know, he didn't know who I was. And he, I said one sentence, and I got this twang hillbilly shit after he was sort of talking. And there's this long pause, and he went, do you know anything about hip-hop? I was like, oh, no. <laughs> like, like, yes, I actually have all of your albums and all that. I'm like, I understand why you might ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> and like getting to know him and Lathan Hodge over the years and like just how, you know, nice and sweet they are. And like you just kind of like for me, I have a very I came in like I got to know that scene much later professionally through Wired as we sort of were writing about things like what Chuck were doing. Um, and so the juxtaposition that I have seen came much later. Right. Where like Chuck and Lathan and I would sit like. We were in Las Vegas, and I was interviewing Chuck for something, and William Shatner walked in to, like, this area. And Chuck D. looks at me, and he goes, Captain Kirk is here. And I was like, well, this just is not really – it takes a nation of millions to hold us back, right? Like, we're right. both like, holy right. shit, Captain Kirk is here. Is it weird if we ask for his autograph? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's – you know – I, yeah, because I, I remember when Rap Station came out, I interviewed him for um, CBS Market Watch. And I remember he didn't ask me, if, you know, what I knew about hip hop. But I do remember wanting to be like, ah, you know, just a couple years ago, you know, I was working with gay. Like I wanted to, you know, right. get, go into it. But um, but what's interesting and, and I think what's interesting with the book for me is the juxtaposition that it shows, right? Like, because so much, at least when we were growing up, the eighties and nineties, it was, it was portrayed, right? Like it was, there was a portrayal of this culture as something, um, 
I don't even know how to say it, but like white America was afraid of it, right? And so then mm. when you're sitting here looking at the Queen Latifah pictures with her mom, right, and you're sort of seeing these contact sheets of these kids, like kids just sitting around in between these shoots, and it is, it, to me, that's just like one of the best parts about that. Like it does so much to explain um, the sort of divide that we have, like the, or the divide that white culture has about looking at hip hop. Right. Um, not as people, but as like this media created image, if that makes sense. No, totally. And I thought, you know, part of what's so beautiful about contact sheets is that um, you can go deeper into the photo and go deeper into the story and you can, you know, it unfolds almost like a movie. You know, it's very cinematic to look at a contact sheet and see what was the frame before who was in the shot after like, Oh, there's Latifah's mom. Like there's her dancers. Like here's, here's the neighborhood where, um, you know, where they live or here's, um, you know, this, this roller skating rink where everyone used to go or, you know, so like showing the, the spaces, the neighborhoods, you know, the community showing, showing the like non-famous people, um, really, I mean, it, it, it humanizes and it sort of takes a little bit of shine away or a spotlight away from the celebrity factor of, of it all. So yeah, it's just a way, um, to maybe connect a little bit, um, easier with like the, the complexity yeah. of, of the story. And yeah. there was the beastie boys one. I can't remember who it was. Um, who's, which one is the one that passed away? Was it Adam Yalk? Um, y- yes. Yeah. So there was the pictures answer. and the yeah. series of pictures and they're all sitting down and there's one where he's smiling and the photographer was like, it's such a weird picture because that was not in his nature. He's like, I don't know why he was smiling. But he was saying, like, now that he's gone, like, he loves that picture, even though he didn't like it when he took it, because he's like, this didn't capture what we were trying to do. Yeah. But it captured, like, a moment of joy with this sort of iconic person that we all grew up with. Like, that's the stuff that this is the first book that, like, the uh, um, photography book that I have been. Like, I just pour through the contact sheets. Like, I pour, like, normally I'm just like looking at pictures and I'm like, yeah, tell me the story. And, like you said, like, it is cinematic and it is to like have them have the role where the photo came off and seeing 24 other images. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and to hear the stories. Yeah. I think a lot of people have been telling me that they're surprised at how much, um, how much writing is in the book, you know? And (laughs) as a fellow writer, you know, you're like, the last thing you want to hear is that you wrote a book, but you know, <laughs> there's actually no writing in right. it, <laughs> but, but so, so people are like, Oh wow. Like there's actual like writing in it because <laughs> they, they're expecting just a photo, yeah, yeah. a photo book, but, but no, but the, you know, the stories and the, the writing I think is, is equally as important. No, it's, um, I will say like looking at the, cause most, so most of these images for people that don't have it yet, most of there's like an iconic image and then there's some writing about how that came about. And then on the, on the sort of left page will be the contact sheet. And some of the contact sheets have like X's and writing and stuff. And the stories are about the photo, but also reference the contact sheet. So as you're sort of taking this all in, there's like three ways to experience really four, right? You can just read the writing. You can just look at the picture. You can just look at the contact sheets. But when you look at them all together, 
it's really it's such a deft way to like explain it, it just it's hard to explain like you just sort of have to experience it like it is i've not ever seen a book like this before um and i think it's fucking marvelous like it really it is marvelous that's so it's so great to hear you know yeah and and i felt like it's a really good way to storytell you know sometimes sometimes it's it's hard as a you know as a journalist of any sort photojournalist you know long form all of that like it's hard to figure out a way to storytell that's like you know doesn't yeah, and it's it's just it's a good way to to story to story tell is that combination of you know photos and archives and then like oral histories basically from from the artists and from the photographers and you know and the photographers are like I I really wanted to celebrate them because you rarely hear from them and they're they're not often used to talking about their work. Um, you know, and so it was really, it was really great because they have, have been with, with artists or been in situations that few people have, you know, they, they're witnesses to like a lot of really, you know, (laughs) untold details and stories. So, um, so that was, that was also really great. Yeah. And, you know, like I sort of weirdly throughout my life, like most of my relationships have been with visual artists, photographers. I don't know if it's because I'm a writer and so there's just no competition, right? Like you can still be creative, but not like constantly trying to outdo the other person. And so as I was reading the book and like reading the writing, I did keep thinking like it must have been really hard to get these people who think visually and who see the world in that sort of visual way to sit down and sort of linearly say like, why does this matter? Like, that just because they at least my experience is photographers are like well what matters is the image like i that's the Mm. thing that that is Mm -hmm. the story yeah right and as writers we're like but (laughs) yeah no i mean you have to pull yeah you have to pull the details out and like piece them back together um some you know and some photographers are are better than sure. others than about, yeah, about sort of like, like Danny Hastings who did like the Wu-Tang Clan photos. And, yeah. Oh, that's a um, great, that, that's the big writing. Yeah. I think. Art, yeah. Yeah. Like that was he, a, yeah. That's where I am. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So you see like, that's yeah. one of the like most like, like longest, most concise stories in the, in yeah. the book. That and Gangster actually, those two yeah. were, were very similar in the way they were structured in the book. Right. Yeah. So, so, you know, they, uh, there's some photographers that are great can just like go right back into that moment and be like, and then, you know, and then Riza, you know, was talking so close to me, I could feel the spit on my face. And, you know, and then I asked him to like step back and took the shot. Like, you know, like there's people like that. And then there's other photographers that are like, I was just in a zone I was just right. like, you know, and so, um, yeah, with photographers like that, you have to sort of go a little, um, deeper and, you know, say like, well, what was happening for you in your life at the time? You know, what, 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 did, what were you like, you know, try to, try to like take them back to that. To did that you write the stuff or did the photographers write it? I, so some of it is in first person. Mm-hmm. So I, 
where where it's first person it was written by we we I interviewed them yep. and then and then so I didn't have them actually you know cuz sometimes when when you ask someone who's not a sure. writer or someone who's not used to it it comes off as different than yes. the real story you know and they, it's very formal and so yeah so everything that is just told first person was um through an interview, yeah, you yeah. know, and then, and then that I transcribed and, you know, and there was, there was actually a lot more writing. Like I didn't have, when I turned in my first, um, draft of the book, um, I didn't have any photo shoots that were purely first person. Mm-hmm. I always, you know, I always had, um, con- like a long, you know, intro to all the shoots yeah, yeah. or it was like a combination of like quotes and intro. And so, um, we, for space reasons, ended up cutting a lot because, um, you know, in book publishing, like you get a finite number of pages <laughs> right. and so, and you have to accommodate. And so, um, we, we had just based on the layout, like we, that we just couldn't afford like to dedicate more than two pages for most shoots. So we yeah. had to, yeah. So we had to cut unfortunately. So, which is, you know, I, as is heartbreaking as a writer, you're so tied to, um, all those details. Yeah. But, yeah. But, um, but yeah. Better to have too much than just enough. <laughs> well, and better, better, you know, as, as my husband said to me, it's like better to have a finished book. Right. Then, <laughs> that is that, also true. That, that Both of really those things. The best, yeah. Right. The best kind of book is a finished book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to I want to take I want to go back and I want to sort of leave the book for a minute and go back because um, I think that I maybe knew this, but then like forgot it because we haven't seen each other in a long time. So you your parents come here when you're five. Yeah. From Kazakhstan. Correct. Yeah. We came here as, um, under refugee status. So, um, my, yeah, my dad was Jewish. So at the time, you know, the Soviet union was letting, you know, Jewish people kind of go wherever they wanted. Um, and then United States, um, accepted us and then, uh, like resettlement services placed us in Detroit. Um, and it's you and your dad or you and your dad and your mom, me and my dad, my mom. Okay. Yeah. And they placed us in Detroit. You know, my dad was an electrical engineer, so they thought he could get, um, work in the, in the auto industry. Um, that's, you know, how we, how we landed in Detroit. Um, and what did your mom do? She was a librarian. Um, so she, uh, you know, that maybe that, that, that's, that's also like part of the, the joy of doing this book is that, um, like a seeing the book in libraries, you know, which right. I know she would have, she would have loved, but also like, you know, I maybe get that like research gene or that like digging gene from her. Um, so did it, did your dad get a job? I mean, like, what was it like? I know you were what, five, six years old, like yeah. what, growing up, was he, what did he do? What did your mom do? Like, did she work as a librarian? Did he work no. as a librarian? <laughs> no, the plan did not go accordingly. Um, <laughs> so my dad, you know, he couldn't get work in the auto industry um, because the auto industry was in a shit space when we moved there, you know, late 70s. Um, so he and oh, yes, the gas crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There were like no no jobs to be had. Um, and, you know, neither of them spoke English. So that was um, challenging to get like other, other types of jobs. So he ended up working, um, as a janitor, 
um, at like a, we had a store called uh, Kresge's in Detroit, yeah. which, you know, Detroit, I, I don't know if it might've been other parts of the Midwest, but kind of like a Walmart. Sure. Um, um, so he worked as a janitor there and my mom, um, she worked a little bit like part-time as a librarian to start, but, um, but she actually went legally blind. So, uh, what happened? she, uh, she was already like, she, her eyesight was, she was already blind in one eye and like half blind in the other, like from, um, like a botched, uh, eye surgery in the, so, in the Soviet union. Yeah. For glaucoma. Like she had early onset glaucoma, but, um, and so she was legally blind. Um, and so she was on, um, you know, public assistance. And so, so the, our family, you know, we just pretty much lived on, um, you know, aid, it was called aid, aid to dependent children at the time, ADC. And, um, you know, my mom got her benefits, disability benefits. Um, you know, and my dad worked a little bit as a janitor here and there, but he, he really, um, you know, he was not really part of our life for long. He ended up, um, with some other problems and, you know, it ended up just being me and my mom starting at like, uh, like 10, 10 years old, like 10 years on, it was just me and my mom. Yeah. Now, uh, and you're in public school and you don't speak English, right? Yes. So I, I started public, I started kindergarten, you know, here, uh, in, yeah, as, as a five-year-old and, um, I did not speak English and, um, you know, at the time, like, there was a, you know, it was the cold war still. And so I remember, uh, yeah. And so like kids learning that you're from the Soviet union was like, you know, you get called a spy, you get called that. Like it was, you know, all the, that Rocky movie was out. It was like, it was all horrible. Right. Um, and so, so Creed two being out right now is like bringing back terrible memories of, right. I have not seen it yet. Triggering. I cannot see it. Right. (laughs) Um, but yeah. And so, you know, it was, it was really, um, not hospitable and, and the school systems too were not what they are now. You know, now I think there's a little bit more like inclusiveness to new immigrants where possible, you know, in the school system or, but they are like, you know, I remember there was like one other Russian kid in the school that had also like immigrated over. And so he and I, like, we could understand each other. And so we would like hang out and stuff. And, uh, and they, as soon as they saw that they were like, they forbid us from hanging out with each other. Cause they're like, you need to learn English and you guys need to stop. And I'm like, but no one else will hang out with us. Like, <laughs> Wait, so how old, you, how old were you when they were like, you can't be friends with the only person that you can communicate with? Right. Probably like, you know, that like first grade. So like, like seven, something like seven, eight years old, something like yeah, that. Yeah. That's traumatic. <laughs> it's dramatic. I know we would like look at each other across the playground, like longingly, like, right. ah, like, as we're like little saying. Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> both of us standing there, like by ourselves. Right. right? Cause nobody else would, you know, talk to us. But, um, but That's yeah, fucked so, up. That's fucked but, up. <laughs> but you know, but look in their minds, they were like, we are helping these kids assimilate. Like, sure. Maybe if they, if they, if they don't, you know, if they don't start speaking English, then, you know, 
they, there's no room for them here. So I guess in their minds, like that was their way of assimilating us. I know, mean, that is a kind revisionist way to think. There may have been some folks <laughs> that are thinking that. There may have other Maybe, folks that are right. like, fuck those Russian kids. Right. Like, like, let them have no joy. Yeah. I mean, all. like, just, I mean, you know enough humans to know. Probably yeah. all of them were not but benevolent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But in the seven-year-old bond, you're like, well, they just wanted to help me. <laughs> right, right, right. So <laughs> at what, not to like, you know, um, so at what point, like how, like when do you start um, picking up English? Like do you do that by reading? Is it just the immersive stuff or watching TV like immigrants like have done in the past? Like how does it happen? Yeah. Yeah, like all of the above. You know, you watch a shit ton of television, um, you know, listen to the radio, like just li- like li- li- listen and observe. And, and then it just comes. And, you know, I think part of it also is like you're young. So yeah, you, it's easier. Le- you learn really quickly. Yeah. 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 And I remember my mom, you know, going to like English classes and, and learning in classes and, you know, being adorable, like you know, practicing at home, <laughs> like, right. but, but, you know, very quickly, like I would do all the talking like in stores and, you know, when we had to go to like our visit, our like caseworker for benefits, like I, you know, I was doing all the talking cause she still, she struggled, you know, with English her whole life. Sure. Um, so Were yeah. You- and that maybe is like part of why I became a journalist, you know, is like, yeah. I like to ask, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid to like ask questions or answer questions or, you know, it's that the communication thing, uh, may have, may, <laughs> may have kicked in. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Like I have, uh, been going through, um, therapy sort of dealing with some childhood things and, uh, growing up in an environment that may not have, uh, fostered the kind of emotional growth that would have been beneficial. And, um, <laughs> I like, I love how we can verbalize it so positively, yeah. all of these things now. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. In public, I do. If you, if you, yeah, when you come right. up for dinner, like we'll have the real conversation, but the world does not need to know. Right. Um, but like one of the things that my therapist has said is part of the reason that you became a writer is because the world didn't, you were trying to make sense of the world. Like it didn't make sense to you and you didn't know why, because you're a kid and you think it's normal, but there was something in you saying, this is not normal. And so part of the reason I love being a writer, part of the reason I love doing this is because I get to sit back and ask people like, okay, like why did you do that thing? And how did that thing make you feel? And like, what do you think made that happen? (laughs) Right. Like, and in that you make sense of yourself. Absolutely. Right. And you're not, you're not afraid to ask those questions or, um, just kind of once you, once you kind of like free yourself to say like, this doesn't make sense and it's fucked up, you know, and it's, and it's not me. Right. You know, it's like, it's yeah. not me, it's you. Um, it, it took me till I was 43. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, that's real, you know, and that, that, um, I mean, that's why, you know, this, this outsider, I mean, a lot of people then say like, oh, well, did you like hip hop? Because it was so like, you know, fuck you and demanding respect and all of this. And probably, you know, to some degree, yes. Um, I think also, you know, just outsider ethos or outsider 
cultures was something that I was also drawn to. I mean, um, obviously, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, from the yeah, time yeah. you're here, you are right. an outsider and treated as such. Like, And you are not even allowed to talk to the people that are like you. Exactly. So, so <laughs> there's a very something, yeah, <laughs> direct line, <laughs> very direct line, and even yeah. I mean, that's why you know I love like club, like nightclub culture, yeah, or you know even like you know punk and all all of these things. Like sure. to me, to me, they're all very connected. Um, so were I, you. When yeah. you were younger, like so, you're ten, like you're learning the language. You're like ten, eleven. Like your dad's not around. Um, are you reading a lot? Are you listening to like when? When does write? Like when does the sort of literary? Because you have like you clearly have a love of the visual stuff, but you're a writer and you have this love of music. So when does that start to become a part of your life? It must have been early. Yeah. So. Like the music, the music part came first, you know, the, 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 just that escapism into music really came first. Um, and I would listen, I would listen to a lot of radio, you know, cause we, like, we didn't have a car, we were home a lot, you know, we, um, and so I would listen to a lot of radio. There was one radio show in Detroit called the electrifying mojo, which came on, um, late at night. And it was like mojo played, like all this really obscure stuff. He's kind of like a local legend, but he would play like Prince and then he'd play like early techno and then he'd play Aretha Franklin and just really, you know, and then he would play like Kraftwerk and he'd play a lot of like obscure, (laughs) like Euro funk stuff. Um, And, and that, that was sort of my first memory of feeling really connected, like through this radio program um, to like, there's something out there that's like weird and, and outsidery and yet like sounds super awesome and kind of sounds like what I see around me, yeah. you know, it, yeah. and, and so, so that was, that was sort of like when I first started to fall in love with it. And then, um, Actually, I wanted to hear like Detroit had this burgeoning house music scene mm-hmm. um, when I was, you know, probably start, starting in like ninth or tenth grade, and I started I started going out to those clubs as like a ninth grader, tenth grader, <laughs> and um, and you know I I would say like sneaking out, but you know it was just me and my mom, and right. so she I mean she was you know so <laughs> um, so. But I, had you I guys start, been in a different situation, you would not, that probably would not have happened. What, me going out to these, to the clubs? Yet when you're in ninth grade, yeah. Pro, no, yeah. probably not. <laughs> right. I mean, I have, I have kids now, like right. my son's going to be in ninth grade next year. I'm like, there is no way right. that you're like, yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I'm like, our security system will pick you up leaving the house anytime past 8 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um. But yeah, you know, my mom was really struggling with just life. So she was a little distracted. Um, She also, you know, she just didn't know what American teenagerhood was. You know, like. Yeah, that's what I mean. Right. You were sort of, that you were free range before that was a thing. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I was, I was totally free range. So I started going out to these clubs and, you know, the, the clubs were like incredible, like really underground. There was a big gay scene at the time um 
clubs like, you know, Heaven were like predominantly like African-American and gay and started playing like early house music. And so I would go um, to all those places. I had like two, you know, wingmen that I would like go with, you know, who were like equally as young. And, um, and, 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 you know, in those spaces, I really felt at home, you know, I really felt like, why do you think that is? Well, cause it was a bunch of outsiders like me, you know, and I feel so like cliche in saying that, but it's really, it's really true. You know, it was, um, it was just a bunch of people who were, um, you know, really using music like to escape as community, as, you know, saying like, you know, we don't fit in necessarily into like, you know, this, the mainstream culture of what's happening now, but like this is happening here altogether. And so it was, you know, it was really cool. And it was like, you'd see punk kids and you'd see like skateboard kids and you'd see, you know, old like house heads. And so it was, um, it was really exciting, you know, and it was never like, um, like I never got hit on or anything. Like it was just, it was really about the music and just like having fun. And it was kind of slightly mirroring, you know, like other club scenes around the country that were taking off too in this sort of like alternative world. Um, so I guess, you know, I guess that was like the prequel too to my New York life is that well, yeah. I, I <laughs> yeah. also, yeah, like <laughs> yeah. that, you know, <laughs> maybe going back even further from, you know, what I told you earlier is, you know, I, I went, um, I went to New York seeking that. Oh, I also, you know, I forgot to tell you earlier when I did move to New York, I also, I was working at the clubs, um, And before I got a job at Payday, I actually had an internship at this magazine called Paper. And I bring it up because it's a really important magazine in the world of, like, alternative culture. You introduced Um, me to the editor at South by a few years ago. Oh, right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. David Hershkovich. Yeah. He and I went out and had, like, a long, wonderful conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And so David is, you know, one of my favorite human beings ever. He was, you know, in some ways a mentor. Um, and he, yeah, he had started, he, um, and Kim Hastrider had started this like independent magazine that was all about alternative culture. And so I interned them for them, like from the moment I got to New York and I, it was like one of, like I said, like one of my many jobs, but they were amazing because they, covered sort of under one roof, everything that I was drawn to, including hip hop. And so a lot of my early hip hop, um, interviews were because of paper, you know, even like, you know, even when like, you know, Diddy was, was starting his label, like David was like, you know, like, I think that label's going to be something you should go to interview them. <laughs> and, and, um, and so, yeah, they, they, like, they were so genre, like genre that they, they, they just were drawn to whatever was yeah. like pushing the envelope, which was, um, you know, a lot of down, downtown culture. Um, I want to so, go back. Yeah. Like, I want to go. So, but, so how do you go from, uh, you know, I'm five, I don't speak English you know, like to, I'm learning it through all of these things to now I'm interning at a magazine. Like 
11 years later or whatever, 13 years later, like when does the writing start happening or, or have you learned, I mean, not that you couldn't write when you got there, like, or have you learned how to like do that professional writing at places like paper, like at in environments like that, or were you writing in high school? So, you know, I, I was, I was a very green writer when I was interning at paper, when I was starting a freelance, like, you know, some of my early writing, like I hadn't worked out the kinks in like, <laughs> you know, journalism school. Like I was working out the kinks real time, Yeah, yeah. you know? <laughs> so yeah. So but why did the, you want to go to paper? Was it because of the environment was, or because you because wanted to write? No, so the writing is a, an output of that. Yes. And in fact, I went there. So I was taking photos. Like I was, um, like, I don't call myself a photographer, but that too was sort of my first love. Like I was shooting a lot of photos in Detroit. Um, I was developing in the dark room and I actually started interning at paper as a photo intern. And then, and then David Gates started giving me little writing assignments. <laughs> like we, um, we need you to write because we're small. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, so I was, you know, I was working out, working out the kinks, but, um, but I'd say, you know, the thing that there was, um, I guess the thing that even gave me, I think, you know, when you're from a like underprivileged background, like I think a lot of people don't even realize like writing could be a job, you know, it's so, yes. I don't know. Like <laughs> I, I do know I, that. Yeah. Right. Like I, you know, you probably sound like you probably, you know, grew up in similar, um, like socioeconomic situation, but like, right. Like nobody tells you like there's, this journalism school and like you could go and you could actually get paid to like write about things that you see and feel like, you know, like that would sound yeah. like nobody ever told me that I read voraciously. I wrote yes. voraciously and I was like, I don't know how you get a job. Nobody that I know doesn't <laughs> right. like labor. Right. Like Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, we had a whole like right shop class and yeah. you know all all that kind of stuff. So I, um, yeah, I just sort of like went into it very like haphazardly into the writing. But there was there was like one program I guess like I also should credit when when I was in high school. There's um, there's a program called um, Horizons Upward Bound where, um, I think they have it in a couple cities now, but at the time it was mostly, I think it was Detroit and Chicago that had it. Um, and it's basically like they take some kids from like, you know, Detroit inner city schools and they send them to this like really fancy private school, um, that's usually like dorm, you know, dorm living during sure. the year. Yeah. And you go and you live there for the summer and the teachers that are there like teach you, you know, it's sort of like, you know, their, their community service, if you will. <laughs> and, um, and then during the year, you also do like additional work on Saturdays and sure. it's like, you know, it's meant to like make you college bound and all that stuff. And so there, I do have to say there was like one writing teacher and he actually, like, he introduced a lot of, like, the classics to us, like, J you know, James Baldwin and Octavia Butler, um, and he, and, uh, like, To Kill a Mo like, a lot of just really, you know, like, foundational books that, like, I just wasn't being exposed to yeah. in my school. So that program, too, like, 
it would have been good if I wasn't so social, you know, because by that time I had become really like a social butterfly. Right. And, you know, in fact, like my feedback in the, like I recently found like all my feedback from that program and it was like, Vicky could be great if she would just stop talking, like, you know. Right, but you go back to when you were five when you were trying, and they were like, you're not allowed to speak to anybody. Like, of of course, as soon as you get some agency, you're like, fuck this, I'm talking to everybody because I don't know when people are going to stop me from talking. (laughs) I feel like that's the most logical outcome of that. Oh, my God. (laughs) Suppressive childhood stuff. Right, right. But it's also... Yeah, it's also interesting (laughs) that like story becomes and like it. I don't know what you were like when you were five. I don't know when you developed it, but like having an environment where you're not where you just have to absorb things, right? Like you're not allowed to communicate in the ways that with the people that can and they make you immerse yourself. Like it is interesting to me that like you said, music is a is sort of an immersive thing that you can get lost in right like that's a story and photography like you were doing that when you were young and like you have then sort of come into the writing like everything you do seems to be about sort of observing and seeing and then telling yeah yeah and 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 you know I think also because I don't I don't come from um a just a traditional background that I can sort of feel comfortable you know talking to a lot of different kinds of people for me, or like, like, I don't feel like I have like a similar kind of person to me necessarily. So yeah, so that I like it, you know, and in fact, like now I, I, I like it. Like I'm really drawn to opposites and, you know, things yeah. like, yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely a, a comfort zone for a long time. I couldn't understand how it's not a comfort zone for everyone, you know, and then that's something too, like, as I got older, um, just being like, Oh, okay, like that's, it's really hard for some people to like, you know, maybe walk into a group that they have never been part of and feel, you know, feel like that's not a place, you know, or like, I don't know, you know, feel, feel like negatively versus being like, Hey, what's up? Like, what's, you know, I'm here. (laughs) When I moved to Austin, like I was 20, I don't know, 22 or something. Like I graduated college and just knew I I needed to leave or I was never going to write or whatever. And so I had no money. Like I've told people this twice in Austin, I had less money in my bank account than you could withdraw from the ATM. So like there was like a dollar 75 in the thing, but like you can't get any money out. Uh, Right. Yes. Yes. And so under $5, you have to go in, you have to write a check and you have to like, right. And and like taking the dollar out wasn't going to do me any fucking good. So I was like, well, So I ended up getting this job. First, I worked at a nightclub, but I got a job at Antone's, which is the big famous blues club down in Austin where, like, Stevie Ray Vaughan got started and, you know, Willie Nelson. And, like, every night there'd be, like, oh, here's Coco Taylor and, like, the the remaining members of Muddy Waters when they're, like, 400 years old stopped into play. And um, it was a thing that, you know, it's predominantly as blues. So it was predominantly a, uh, a black culture that was around there um and like not having any money you're like i don't have time to feel awkward you know like i I don't have any money and i don't know that i mean i didn't come from a place where i mean i lived in a small town in appalachia so we literally had one black person um jara who graduated with us but i had that sort of same sense that you i think had and that i was like oh yeah like 
I am not black, but I understand this experience of like not fitting in and sort of feeling like this is not really people look at you funny and you have to be careful when you say stuff. And so being poor, I think, was and not that we were like dirt poor, but I was poor. right? Like, right. Um, and you just kind of you do it because you don't have the ability to not do it. Like there's not a choice. There's not a choice. Yeah. <laughs> right. And there's there's not a lot of yeah, there's there's yeah, there's no option to Yeah. And it's um, hard it's hard to explain. Like, it, it is a it is a weird experience because obviously when I was young and, and our young experiences were different, but it was very you know, everybody around me looked and sounded like me. But I always had a sense that the world did not, right? Like you look at the way like hillbillies are portrayed i'm like oh they don't like us very much you know like mm, the beverly right. hillbillies and hee haw are fun but like that is i think people laughing at us and not with right. us You're like i think yeah like this doesn't right. you know jeff foxworthy to this day drives me crazy because i feel like he plays into those stereotypes for laughs at and not laughs with and so mm. i sort of have carried that with me and um have always, always lived in either neighborhoods that were predominantly black or predominantly brown since I left my town. Um, because that is where I've always felt most comfortable, I think, because of that outsidery thing. Yeah. Um, and class, right? Like, class has a lot to do with it, I think, for me as well. Like, if yes. You're, if you're from yeah. the working class, like, poor people don't have time to hate each other because we're all trying to hustle. Right? Like, <laughs> It's true. It's, I mean, it's true. You know, and these are, I mean, these are really, you know, funny, but also really, um, right. given, just given, you know, where we are in history and, and time and, you know, the, the kind of like lines that have been drawn in recent years with, you know, with Trump and every, like this, this, this conversation that we're having right now about like intersectionality and like, you know, poor, like where, where do you align yourself? You know? And and, like, it's, it's a difficult, it's very of the moment, but it's also very, just a difficult conversation to have right now because, um, everything is so, um, being, right. yeah, Fuck that. Every, Is that, fucked, that's the yeah. word that you're looking for. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, I mean, things, yeah. And things have been fucked up for a long time, sure. but they are fucked up in a particular way right now where, um, well, know, I think middle-class white people are understanding it now. Like, that's what I think is, I think that most of the like black and brown people have known it's been fucked up for a long time. And I think Trump made middle-class white people go, oh, my God, did you know things are... It was why the Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock skit on Saturday Night Live was so on point, right? I don't know if you saw that, but, like... Yes, yeah, where they were like, we don't care who wins. Yeah, and, like, the white people were like, how could this happen? And, you know, Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle are like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Like, um, You know, I think that the level of the conversation has has just come to, like, middle-class white America. I think that is why it feels so fucked up to people Um, because the conversation isn't new for the, you know, black and brown people. (laughs) Yeah, but there is still, I mean, and there's, there's new elements being added to the conversation too, right? The whole privilege conversation, the whole, like, you know, you could easily also just take like a story of mine, like my story or your story. Like, could we have, 
had that same trajectory if we did not pass as white. Like, you know, yeah, or no, like, yeah, no. we weren't white, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, so that, I mean, it just adds all these layers. I think, I think right now, like a lot of the stories are being looked at through that lens first, like yeah. first and foremost, right. It's like, oh, but like, you know, you ended up fine because you're white and like, you right. got all that white privilege. Like, you know, when you walked into a room, it was assumed that you were like, you know, a preppy white girl from wherever, or yeah. like when you walked into a room, maybe before you started talking. No, it's a hundred percent. Until I opened my mouth, I was right. like, and then I would hee haw, like, right? And right. people were like, were like, "What like, the shit?" Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's what I mean. Like this, like there's there's added, um, just added considerations now that are really you know at the forefront right now so and that was um, you know going back yeah. to the beginning of the conversation that I, I was trying to articulate about contact high about the book about looking at the contact sheets is that hip hop culture was largely promoted and pushed as this like from the street like it was one it was the single narrative right like every story was like Poor black kid, overcome, blah, guns, whatever. And then you look at contact. Like, you look at the contact sheets, and I don't know what Queen Latifah's background is, but I'm seeing her with her mother, right? And, like, that was not the image that was portrayed, like, that she actually is multifaceted, right? Like, this thing that you have, this persona, is not necessarily indicative of your life, right? But that was not the way that culture was marketed for 25 years, right? Correct, right. That and is why was... I think the book is so interesting because I'm like, this is a multifaceted view of a world that we were given one narrative for lots of complex reasons, I'm sure, but one narrative through the 80s and 90s, right? Like, um, that was the Chuck D thing, right? Like, when he was like Captain Kirk, I'm like, well, shit, that would have never made the marketing material. You know, like right. Chuck D watched Star Trek. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. And and you know, yeah, and, and Chuck D went, you know, went to uh graphic design school. Right. He was, you know, just, yeah. I mean that was that that and that that speaks to this like other part that I was trying to get into in contact high yeah. is like who was telling these stories? Right. Who was who was making the decisions? Like you know, deciding which images to put, you know, on album covers or on you know magazine covers. Like that um, is a powerful thing that creates you know over time this yeah. kind of general narrative. But um, it's but yeah. why I love this book so much. Like it's why I said like I was not able to articulate it. I think as well, but like, <laughs> why I pour over each one of those images because I'm just like. I don't know if people, I mean, I know I'm not the only person in America that's going to get that, but I, I wonder how many people are really going to look at all those images and, and have that moment of like, oh shit, right? Like that really was just some marketing stuff that was going on. And not that like people didn't come from bad places, but not everybody had the same narrative. Well, exactly. I mean, like, you know, it's crazy, but, you know, I think some people would would be like, oh, there's like a black middle class or (laughs) like not everyone grew up with a single mother. Right. Like, you know, there's there's um, right. And just because you're black doesn't mean you like hip hop like that. That too, like all those assumptions are. Yeah, racist. Like, yeah, but know. I think that this book, without ever coming out and saying that, like, at least that has been my experience of it, is that this is sort of, it is a, not a, it, it is in some ways also a critique, right? Like, it is a critique of the ways in which we have come to know hip hop. Right. Without, without ever being lecturer, without ever saying, like, by the way, people, 
It literally is just like laying out the things and having people tell stories. And like these photographer, I can't remember, was it um, Big Pun? It was somebody's first shoot and they had an Uzi and like all his friends came and the photographer was just like trying to get him to point the Uzi elsewhere and he just kept forgetting. And the guy's like, I took four pictures and left because... Oh yeah, that was yeah yeah that was um that was Biggie's first Biggie Smalls yeah Biggie right yeah yeah and it's just lit, you know you're like whoever this photographer was was like yeah this is I don't want anything to do with this <laughs> like this is and right. I was just sort of giggling like because we also th- like it's these are kids like the, so some of these kids did have rough upbringings and like everybody that was documenting it wasn't like part of the scene and like down like this is just a dude taking pictures and he's like this is fucked up i don't want to be around this right, like, right. i took yeah. four pictures and right. left and i was yeah. in the diner today like almost crying laughing because i was like <laughs> right. well yeah <laughs> like taking photos over his shoulder like i'm out of here like i don't care how famous you're gonna be like right. um yeah so anyway, like th- uh, the book yeah. is um is fucking amazing. It really is like one of the coolest books that I've ever read. Which is uh, read is the wrong so... thing to say, but <laughs> well, not necessarily. Read yeah. and looked at and experienced and it is like no other book that I've ever seen. Thank you. Wow. That's so that's so inspiring. Yeah, because I'm now, you know, have a couple other book ideas up my sleeve and um no you pressure. Know, he- hearing, well, just no, but hear like hearing what how people like to experience stories is really helpful as a writer. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So that that's awesome to hear. Um, yeah, and the book's been getting a lot of love. You know, a and lot it's of also, love. Yeah, and it's 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 getting a lot of love in a way where, um, you know, I feel like it is not becoming my book anymore like mm-hmm. which which I love you know I say that in the most like poetic romantic sense that like everyone I talk to it's like it makes them I don't know it makes them feel like remember back to like what they were doing during certain times oh, or, yeah. like where they were when they first heard something or saw something or you know and so everyone it seems to really be, be personalized by by people where they feel an ownership to it, which is like really beautiful, you know? Yeah. I mean, I tell writers all the time, like the, the writing of the book is actually in the process. And as soon as it becomes an artifact, it's not your, it's not, you're not writing anymore. Like now it's just the thing that you're done with. And so how people experience that, like, if you look at reviews or you care about any of that stuff, like you'll never be happy because you'll focus on the two people that didn't get, the thing you wanted them to get when really for the writer, it's the process, right? It's the three years. It's the lifetime yeah. of your work. That is the art of the writing. Yeah. Um, yeah. That said, and- the fucking product is amazing. <laughs> 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 and anybody that says otherwise is fucking wrong. And I will uh. tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it has been lovely to catch up with you after all these years. And uh, I hope we can get you here to Pittsburgh. And I'm just so thrilled to, like, see this thing that you've done. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you. Yeah, it has been way overdue for us, for sure. Um, And hopefully, you know, this book can be the reason that we we connect again in Pittsburgh. Um, And, yeah. 
yeah, let's, let's for sure. Let's make it happen. You know, introduce me to whoever you need to introduce me to. I will, <laughs> I, will I will do my, my immigrant, you know, no shyness, uh, pitches <laughs> whatsoever. I got nothing, I got nothing to lose. Look, we also, that's another thing we, 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 maybe we can end on is like, sometimes when you have nothing to lose in life, like that can be a great asset, you know? Yes. It's, I have told my students two things. When you got nothing, you get in the door however you need to. I don't give a shit what it takes you to get in the door. Get in the door because that's right. the most important thing. And then shut it and do whatever you want to do. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you stand around and like complain like I don't know how to do it, like they're not going to let you in. They're not right. going to let you in. So, no. you know, and, and once you sort of do that, 20 years later, you'll be the most interesting person at the party it's going to suck while you do it not Mm. having money that you can take out of the bank is not fun telling that story when you have money you can take out of the bank is fun as fuck Ah, (laughs) i love that all right we're gonna gonna end there right right Yes, and that's very hip hop. Thank you. you. Just said. Yes. <laughs> All right, take care of yourself. All right. Thank you, Brad. Bye. Bye. All right, so there it is. That was Vicky. What an amazing story, and uh, I cannot encourage you to enough to go buy this book, uh, Contact High, A Visual History of Hip Hop. Also, you can subscribe, you're obviously here, uh, through iTunes and Stitcher. Um, We've moved to thebradking.com backslash podcast, so thegeekypress.com is shutting down, or will be soon, so all of these will be hosted on my site. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at thebradking.com. And you can follow me on Instagram in the same way, thebradking.com, where I'm posting lots of images and things from the books. And uh, really, we'll just be talking a lot about the writers throughout the this season. Um, it's good to be back. I think that was a strong first showing. I hope you enjoyed it. Please, if you did, leave us a review, both at iTunes and Stitcher. All of those things help. And I will see you on the Internet very soon. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.